Welcome to the Oda Magazine podcast. We at Oda want to provide a deeper look at the people that we spend the most time with through a podcast featuring creatives and interpreters across art, fashion, film, and other creative disciplines. Each episode highlights the work of the individuals contributing to the culture in conversations of today and tomorrow. Our guests inspire the future by highlighting everything from diversity, equality, and of course, passion. Oda Magazine is a platform where dreams, inspiration, and imagination can grow to the next level and be shared with those ready to be inspired. I'd like to start with your childhood. Um, could you first describe where you grew up and how this environment impacted your way of seeing the world? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in... Um in switzerland uh it's uh i was born in zurich but then my childhood was in uh weinfeld that's kind of a small town in the eastern part of switzerland um and the school was in kostinger which is basically about 50 minutes away and it's uh, uh, adjacent to the lake of constance which is a, a quite big lake uh connecting switzerland austria and germany so it's a a kind of a triangle, no, of of three mm. countries. So it became a very daily activity to sort of cross the frontier. No, it was a very post-national or transnational childhood. Yeah, uh, one would go to the movies to Germany, and you know, uh, one, would, one could swim to Austria in the lake, that kind of thing. So lots of connection and. Yeah, transnationalism at a young age. Would you? Yeah, and at the same time, also, you know, not the big city. So, living in a small town, and basically, uh, uh, it was. I wouldn't necessarily say that it was that it felt. You know, it, it, there was a clearly something was missing. Also, you know, because I later on moved to big cities because I felt something was missing during during my childhood, and um, there weren't like any, you know museums or exhibitions when I always had to go to Zurich or I mean the distances in Switzerland are not very big so one could just take a train and go 10 hours to Zurich you know so I would be a lot there um, and uh, I mean the other thing which is maybe important to say is that there was this um, abandoned house which I always saw on my way to school and at some point I wanted to know kind of from my teachers what this house was because it was a very spooky house it felt empty in a park abandoned and uh and my teacher explained that it was basically uh, a former clinic of this you know famous psychiatrist uh, called uh Binswanger, who he was actually the topic of Foucault's thesis and uh was quite quite famous and he was the clinic where the uh famous german art historian abi warburg resided at some point you know and for me as a as a as a child it was like incredibly interesting to to hear that this legendary art historian you know most germany's most legendary art historian uh would have lived in this uh in this place and uh i started to kind of research wanted to find out more about him and uh you know he today in london there is the warburg institute so there's an institute for him uh, he did the famous Nemos in Atlas and kind of finding out about this legendary, um, you know, um, resident, you know, 
prior to this clinic being abandoned, uh, being this legendary art historian, was kind of also important because it's sort of because he did his name was in Atlas and it prompted me in my teens to then do a little museum of postcard in my children's room, you know, in my parents' apartment. Yeah. So yeah. So would you say um that experience was a moment where your future path became clearer or was it still a bit hazy then and it still needed to develop in a way? Yeah, no, thank you. That's a very interesting question I've actually really thought about. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was hazy maybe until about 15, you know? So when the sort of awakening happened and I started to be really passionate about art at 12, 13, you know, it was very hazy and I didn't really know. But then sort of when I was 15, 16, I started to visit artists and it became kind of clear that I, yeah, that I wanted to somehow work with artists. And uh, and, and in Switzerland, there was a kind of, there was a curator, a very well-known curator called Harald Seemann. Mm. He was he was really well-known and uh, a lot in the press and so a public figure, you know, and so uh, which was unusual for that time. There weren't many, you know, well-known curators. And so somehow I think that was also, that helped quite early on to clarify for me what I wanted to do because I, you know, I knew that I wanted to not necessarily work, you know, in the commercial sector, that I wanted to work more in a, in the maybe, you know, museum sector or I was very sort of magnetically attracted by museums. I, I knew and sort of, and sort of the idea of a curator came in when I was sort of 15, 16. So yeah, it was hazy until then mm. and very clear ever after. Um, and my next question is, when you were growing up, did you do you think your definition of art or what you thought of as art when you were, say, 15, 16, is different to what it is now or has it remained fairly consistent? I mean, I would say that... Um, it's always evolving, of course, because art is changing what we expect from it. No, yeah. I mean the amazing thing with art is that always, you know, artists push the limits of art, and artists, you know, come up with new rules of the game, and and so I always learn from artists. So I wouldn't say that it has uh, not evolved. You know, so each yeah. encounter with artists, it's kind of expanding, um, but at the same time, some of the sort of ideas of what artists stayed with me certainly from the beginning. You know, when Gerhard Richter, when I visited him when I was 17, and when Gerhard Richter would tell me art is the highest form of hope, I still mm -hmm. believe that's true today. You know, when I went to a lecture of Joseph Beuys and he would, you know, that was also as a teenager, I attended a lecture of Joseph Beuys and he would talk about the expanded notion of art, you know, so that artists actually expand what art is and as a consequence, I came to the realization that that means that if curators, if curating follows art, that, you know, and if art expands the notion of what art is, curating as a consequence has to follow artists and expand mm. the notion of what curating is. And these are ideas which stayed, me, stayed with me, I would say, you know, ever since. Yeah. But it has evolved. It's evolving. Okay. Um, and you mentioned Harold Zeman earlier and... You're quite famous for your kitchen exhibition when you're 23. Um, and of course, that's like Zeman's grandfather, a pioneer like us, with the inversion of public and private spaces. Do you still think that 
is important to remind audiences of the potential for art in the everyday? Is that something that's constantly at the forefront of your mind? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's always present because I, you know, I didn't grow up in a household where my parents would have basically art books around or would take me to museums. I mean, they did take me once to a monastery library, which when I was very young, which became a quite important revelation because I looked at all these medieval books and it was like a time, you know, a time capsule in a way. And that was certainly, you know, a, a very, very important kind of experience. But otherwise, my parents were not into art. And um, and so how art came to me or and how art entered my life had to do with sort of, yeah, in a way, art actually coming to our household, you know, sort mm-hmm. of, for example, through my mother always brought this medicine of Emma Kuhn's, who was also a painter. She was a spiritual painter, a bit similarly to Hima of Klint, you know, she made spiritual abstraction. And so my mother would always buy the medicine of this healing stone of Emma Kuhn's. She was also a healer. And so on this package, there would be a drawing and I was magnetically attracted to this drawing and, you know, would always look at it and wanted to find out more. Then, you know, my, my uh, late friend Pierre Keller organized the uh, posters for the film, for the, for the jazz festival. It's a famous jazz festival in Switzerland, in Montreux. Mm-hmm. He organized the uh, posters, you know, and as a teenager, I would see like Keith Herring posters, you know, and, uh, uh, and Tangeli posters and things like that. Uh, the timetable of the railway system in Switzerland would basically um, have an artwork on the cover every day because at the time you still had a, a printed timetable because it was, you know, prior to the internet. Yeah. It was sort of mid, early, mid-80s. And so I would see these artworks and I remember like Claude Sando, the Swiss artist, did a cover for the Swiss timetable of the train and... Uh, I, I subsequently made my very first studio visit with him, prompted by the you know railway timetable, mm. you know. Uh, so I would say, I was always you know very grateful that art had arrived through these mobile exhibitions, you know, mm. to our household. And so, for this reason, when I then later became a curator, I always wanted to kind of art, you know, um, go beyond the museum. And I did exhibitions like Do It, which is still ongoing, which is an exhibition made with how-to manuals and instructions where artists give instructions and then everybody can realize them in their household, you know, wherever they are. Mm-hmm. Or I, with Take Me I'm Yours, which was my first show at the Serpentine, actually, in the 90s, Take Me I'm Yours with an exhibition where the artworks would enter every visitor's home, you know, so it would sort of, the exhibition would happen in all the homes of hundreds of thousands of people who visited mm-hmm. this show. And, uh, you know, billboards are a very important sort of thing how to bring exhibitions into a city. And we always, you know, also at the Serpentine work with artists, you know, how we can actually go beyond, you know, um, uh, beyond the, uh, the the perimeters, you know, in the way of the, of the gallery. Yeah. Well, that, um, that links quite nicely to my next question. Your, um, your recent book, Ever Gaia, is a conversation between yeah. us and James Lovelock. And Lovelock, of course, famously said that rational thinking has been the greatest mistake to before humans. And do you think it's the role of artists to help resist the push of hyper-rationality in the modern age? Yeah, I think it's very important that we, you know, I don't think that necessarily art, you know, should lead us completely into the 
irrational. You know, I think we need both. Yeah, yeah. It's both and instead of either or, instead of no, no. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I do think that art indeed, you know, um, opens up always other horizons, expands, you know, maybe also our consciousness. And yeah, in that sense, agree with uh, with Love Lock and with you, what you just said, yeah. And then again, you recently said, if you won the lottery, you'd like to start your own Black Mountain College. Yeah. Uh, and do you, do you see a way in which the current education systems are perhaps limiting not only artistic free growth, but general spiritual, cultural expansion? And have they perhaps taken a wrong turn? Yeah, I think that in a way we, you know, we live in a society where there are a lot of silos still, you know, like hmm. institutions um, we, we, which not, don't necessarily reflect the fluidity of practice of a lot of practitioners in the 21st century, right? And I think in a way that a lot of artists right now, you know, very freely move between poetry and architecture and art and technology and music and, you know, and, and I think and artists invent even their own structures, their own businesses, their own, you know, their own institutions. Um, and I think it's interesting in that regard to think about the fact that, you know, we we do need institutions which can reflect that. You know, we need, it's also why at a certain time it's very important for us that if we want to understand the forces in art, you know, we need to connect visual arts to these other disciplines, which mm-hmm. is why we have a pavilion. You know, we do architecture at a certain time. We work with the park nights, with music and, and performance art. Um, we, you know, have a whole department now of technology uh, uh, where we do these these reports and also sort of hope, hope, want to provide infrastructure for artists to work with technology. We have a department of ecology. Uh, we have a civic department. You know, the General Ecology Project has really put ecology at the forefront in a very interdisciplinary way with everything we do. Mm. based again on a conversation with you know with artists um and um and at the same time we also have a civic department where we kind of bring art into society and 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 Etel Adnan, the late poet and artist and my very dear friend who passed away last year at the age of 97 i think she always says the world needs togetherness not separation mm-hmm. the world needs uh love not suspicion and the world needs a common future and not isolation, you know? And I think in a way we need with our institutions today to reflect that. And I think there are two possibilities, you know, either we can um, transform existing institutions um, and making it happen through that, or we need to start new institutions. And I've always thought that in relation to schools, you know, that it's really interesting that there have been experiments like the Black Mountain College or in more recent history, the Institute of High Studies, you know, which was this institute, which uh, Daniel Buren, Pontus Hulten, the, the artist Buren, the curator Hulten, the artist Sarkis, and the historian Fauchereau, you know, started in Paris in the 80s. And like many of my artist friends, you know, because before London, I lived in Paris for 15 years. And so throughout the 90s, and uh, a lot of my artist friends from that time, you know, uh, in, in France, went through that school. And that would be Absalon, the, the late Absalon, the uh, artist, uh, the sculptor from Israel who lived in Paris, uh, Jen Zen, the uh, artist from China uh, who also passed away and lived in Paris. Uh, and then, you know, my friends, uh, Philippe Pareno, Dominique Gonzalez-Ferster, uh, 
whom we both, you know, showed at the Serpentine, the extraordinary artists, they they both went to this school, you know, and uh, uh, and and they always told me about how incredibly it was. There was just a room, you know, and they would have once a week meetings, uh, and the artists basically would always have the, the, the four directors and curators would always invite a great artist who happens to be in Paris, if it's Claes Oldenburg or you know, Michael Asher or the philosopher Lyotard. Mm. And then they would discuss the whole day, you know, and uh, the rest of the week they would work on their own work. And, um, uh, and, and what is also very important about this school in the 80s in France um, was actually that it, in a way, not only... Um, that, that because actually people didn't have to pay to attend, but they were paid... But it's very important, you know, they were paid to attend. Today, very often, it's the opposite, you know. And I think this idea, this idea also that allowed a lot of artists who would never have had, you know, the economic means to attend such a, mm. such an incredible school, you know, to attend. So I do think, you know, we need such new schools and also rethink the, the whole economy, you know, of that. And it also, um, it takes away the pressure of, because if you're constantly worrying about, oh, I'm paying for this, I need to make the most out of my the service I'm getting, you less likely to take risks because it's a transaction and you want it to be economically efficient in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly also like with art, you know, very often uh, the idea that there is immediately, you know, an outcome, that there is immediately a result, you know, that was not yeah. the case. In this in this institute, but in this institute, you know, the artists encountered many many different mentors, mm. uh, and you know, some of them became their mentors also for life. And, and it also was very important that it was so interdisciplinary, you know, because basically, um, I mean, the philosopher Lyotard, who of course curated the visionary show Les Immateriaux at the Centre Georges Pompidou, he would come to that school and spend the day with the student. You know, and Philippe Areno told me it really changed his life to spend the day with Lyotard. And he still very often talks today about that. And, and, and you know, and I think that idea also that in, in, in art school, that in schools, you know, we, we not only have people from the discipline. So if, for example, somebody studies physics or somebody studies mathematics to not only meet physics experts or mathematicians, or if somebody studies art, you know, to not only meet people from the art world, you know, but, Sometimes the inspiration comes from where you expect it least. You know, in my curatorial, in my curatorial life, you know, my great mentors were very often from outside the confines or the boundaries, you know, yeah. of the art world. So, which brings us back to this fluidity of practice, you know, and and ultimately, if it's Eduard Lisson, the great Martinican, you know, poet and philosopher, or if it's Etel Adnan, you know, the Lebanese uh, French poet and, and and writer and visual artist. Or if it's Cedric Price, the, the late, I mean, they all, uh, so Glisson, Annan, and, you know, Cedric Price passed away now. But when I was, you know, a young curator in the 80s, 90s, that's really where I had many of my key, you know, revelations for, mm -hmm. for, for what I would later do. I mean, to give you an example, Cedric Price was the uh, English architect um, who, visionary architect who, who basically, together with John Littlewood, she was the pioneer of street theater. They, so John and, and Cedric together came up with his after Fun Palace, which was a resolutely interdisciplinary institution 
which mm. would have happened in London and almost got realized it then, you know, for political reasons, didn't happen in the early 60s. And that would have been an institution where, which really would go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge, you know, a participatory organization where all the disciplines would meet and you could have an opera, you could have a concert, you could have a classroom, um, mm. you know. And, and uh, so Cedric became a great inspiration for me. And he also taught me that, you know, we have to question this idea of the master plan of an exhibition. He explained to me that you can also sometimes have a no plan. You can, you know, an exhibition can sort of grow organically. You can learn mm -hmm. together, you know, and you you don't necessarily have to have a checklist at the beginning. You know, you, you can actually, you know, and many of my shows were really very inspired by that. So if I would not have met Cedric or Edouard Glissant, you know, from Edouard Glissant, I learned, I already told you from Etel Adnan what I learned, you know, togetherness, love, you know, common future. And, and as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, this idea of, of uh, you know, um, isolation and, uh, you know, separation, et cetera, et cetera. And so from, from Cedric Price, I told you, I learned this idea that you can have a certain degree also of self-organization and that, you know, um, uh, that uh, from Edouard Glissant, I learned so many things as well. You know, for example, he early on said, you know, we live in this world of globalization. And he said there is two dangers, you know, there's the homogenized globalization, which is going to make us lose a lot of things like languages disappear, species disappear, the, you know, the extinction crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Sort of says grows out of this homogenized globalization fooled by technology. But he said at the same time, you know, there is a counter reaction, which is new forms of localisms, nationalisms, you know, lack of tolerance. Uh, we can see that now all over the world. We can see it also, you know, in many governments, right? With these yeah. new nationalisms and, and so on. And so he said, we need to resist both of that. And we need to negotiate a truly global dialogue, you know, which does not lead to, um, in that sense, the disappearance of differences and, and all of that. And so uh, for me, that is important for literally every single exhibition I do. You know, I ask myself every morning how, because Christian says we need mondialité, we need a, a global, generous, you know, inclusive dialogue, which avoids the, 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 the downfalls of the homogenized globalization. And this negotiation, I think every exhibition has to contribute in a, you know, in a small way to that, right? And so I have that always on my mind. So if you think about schools, you know, ideally, I mean, I I had this practice that because I was always driven by a insatiable and unstoppable curiosity, you know, yeah. in a way. And so I would just have basically these rather unusual, you know, uh, I would say uh, very early on as a teen, you know, with 16, this very unusual sort of, practice or habit that I would just ring up people, you know, and they would become my mentors, you know, and because I was so young, like nobody kind of said no, you know, because it was kind of very unusual that somebody at 16 would show up and say, you know, uh, I would love to, to learn about your work. And I'm, and, and there was really a, a, I mean, I like so many doors open and, and, and there was, was, you know, and, and also uh, I obviously had the, the, the possibility. I mean, I didn't have a, a lot of, you know, um, I didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't take hotels and stuff, but I had this possibility. You know, my parents um, uh, were, were not opposed to what I did. They, it wasn't their world, but, you know, they were supportive in the sense of yeah. that they would buy me these interrail tickets, you know, which were for very little money. You could drive around a month in Europe in summer. Mm -hmm. And so I could do with night trains like 30 days in 30 cities, you know, and, uh, and, and that, you know, not everybody would have this opportunity. And that was very... Um, uh, it was very special that I could just drive around with these trains and find my mentors. You know what I mean? But yeah, but yeah. 
but that so there was a lot of factors involved which were you know um uh, which was you know which were very lucky you know the fact that i would live in a in a geography where by train you could reach so many different countries in europe you know because mm-hmm. europe i mean that that has this possibility that you can just go by train the possibility that my parents were you know having the possibility to you know get me this ticket and that at the same time they were not antagonistic it could have been that my parents could have said no you know that's a bad idea you know so all these factors had to come together and at the same time also the fact that you know i i started very very early and so that's why you know a lot of the artists that would say you know that was kind of they were open you know to me me because of this unusualness uh, of it being so of me being so young but you know not we should a school should offer that possibility you know to 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 more people you know and that's kind of my dream that one could have a school where you know um uh, kids could actually really find their mentors and and that's exactly what this institute did you know the institute you had an institute in paris with pontus sultan who was the leading curator at that time daniel buren who is still alive who is you know a leading artist of mm. uh, in france since the 60s you know a legendary artist the same is true for sarkis you know who had a very non-Western perspective uh, uh, and is also, you know, still working in, in his 80s. So you have these two legendary artists, one from a Western context and one from a non-Western context. And then, you know, and, and already in the 80s, you know, when the, the art world in France was quite Western-centric. Uh, and then you had, um, uh, and then you had, we said for sure, somebody who said, you know, was a historian because also when you invent the future, you know, you invent the futures with fragments from the past. So the mix, yeah. you know, of a, a, a great leading vision. So it's no rocket science, right? You have yeah. a leading curator. You have two two artists from very different geographical backgrounds. And you have uh, a historian. And they just invited, you know, whenever they knew that somebody great came to Paris, somebody, you know, visionary came to Paris, they would invite them to come a day to meet their students, you know. So to set that up wouldn't be that complicated. So I really hope we can make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, changing track slightly, um, your interview project, which is now, I think it's reached roughly 4,000 hours of interviews. Yeah, or yeah. Um, many of them take place over several hours and several or several days, several locations. And I was wondering what about the long form of dialogue that, what is it about the long form of dialogue that attracts you? Is it again, the sense of not giving anything a terminal end stop and letting it develop naturally, or is it something else? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, thank you. That's also a great question because in a way, um, the idea of, you know, long duration, I think is mm. really, is really important in a way in, in, in my life and in my work and in, in everything I do that, that, I mean, I read also quite early on Fernand Baudel, you know, about this idea of the long durée and, and I think in terms of, it's true in terms of projects, you know, some of my exhibitions like Do It has has been going on for 30 years now. It, it started in 93 and it has happened now in 169 cities. Uh, and, you know, it's never stopped. So ever mm-hmm. since 1993, there has always been a Do It exhibition around. And, and so it has to do with this kind of long durational learning also mm-hmm. in a way, you know, li- lifelong learning. I mean, I've always believed that in a way, you know, I want my exhibitions to learn. You know, I think it's quite, I mean, I think to do an exhibition which pretends to know everything is quite arrogant. You know, I yeah. think we need to sort of, we, 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 when you, and that's something, you know, which fascinates me also a lot with video games. You know, we have this exhibition right now 
at the Serpentine with Gabriel Massan and friends, which uh, uh, if you have time, it's there until October. And uh, it's, it's an exhibition where with our technology team, you know, we produced a, a video game with this young, you know, Brazilian uh, uh, artist, Gabriel Massan. And, and it's uh, very exciting because Gabriel worked with their friends, uh, uh, basically worked with their collaborators. Uh, from many different disciplines, performance artists, musicians, you know, mm -hmm. technologists, uh, it involves Ventura Profana, you know, Jota Mombasa, Castiel, Torino Brasileiro, who is also going to do a park night, a performance this summer. Um, and uh, visitors, you know, are invited in, in, the, in the gallery, basically, you know, to play, to play this game. And it's interesting when, at the same time, I've also curated a show, which is now at the Pompidou in Metz in France, uh, and also in Düsseldorf at Julia Stoschek, where it's where it originated with about 40 artists who all work with video games. Um, and when I started to work with this world of video games, it's fascinating that today um, more than 3 billion people play video games, and that's more than a third of the world population. Yeah. And obviously with the video, with the game engines becoming more accessible, I mean, for artists, it's a great medium because first of all, you can bring together so many different things in a game, but also, uh, I mean, literature, music, you know, art, animation. Um, and at the same time, um, a, a video game can also build worlds. It's kind of world building. And of mm -hmm. course, for a long time, it wasn't really accessible for artists so much because the, you know, the game engines were not available and now they're available. So artists can actually very easily you know, do their own game, which is now happening. Like you have a lot of artists who, who develop their own games. So we wanted to map that. And it was really interesting when I began, you know, I initially, I'm, I mean, I didn't really grow up in Switzerland playing video games. It wasn't kind of my background. But I, I, I wanted to really learn about that because I'm, you know, I'm kind of a lifelong student in a way. You know, I always want to learn. And so I, you know, started to kind of play a lot of video games and uh, also uh, was introduced to a lot of different experts of video games. And, and then I realized, wow, actually in the art world, a lot of artists are doing video games. And, and I also realized that video games, when you launch a video game, it's not necessarily with, it's not, it's not like with a movie or with a book, you knowing like a book is out. I mean, of course, the book then when it's out of print, one can revise, you know, mm -hmm. a second edition. Or, but with a movie, for example, once a movie is launched in Cannes or, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in Venice or in a, in a film festival, and then it, it hits the cinemas, it's very unusual that it's being massively edited, you know, yeah, whilst, exactly. whilst it's being shown. Whilst the video game is this kind of complex dynamic system with feedback loops, and very, mm. very often, even the most expensive AAA game, you know, commercial game is being launched. And then during, you know, then soon after the feedback of the players is built in. And so it's an ever evolving thing. So mm. I was like, wow, wow, this is really amazing. The, video, the world of video games has been doing what I do with exhibitions, which in the world of exhibitions is rather unusual, you know, mm. for a very, very long time. And so... Then I got like super fascinated by that, and uh, and again, it's a it's a long durational game. You know, this exhibition it's now in Metz, and until December, it's evolving, it's changing, it's learning, and then it's hopefully going to go to many many more places. And again, you know, it's hopefully also sustainable because it doesn't involve any transport, any you know travel. It's because it's a digital show, so it can pop up. You know, these games mm -hmm. could just be installed in in another museum. So that's a sort of a side note to your question because obviously. My exhibitions are kind of long durée, but also my dialogues with um, artists are long duration, you know, because I think it's really fascinating to work with artists over 20, 30 years, you know, and I've worked with many of the artists I met as a teenager ever since, you know, whilst always being open for new generations, you know. So I think 
the, the work of the curator has to be continuation and opening. You know, on the one hand, it's to continue to work. You know, it's not just, it's not like to tick a box. It's the opposite of ticking a box. Yeah, it's not that you work like with an artist and then that box is ticked and then you move mm -hmm. on, you know. But no, I think very often uh, it's over time that, you know, and uh, that, that the dialogue can evolve. And it's also like maybe to answer your question more specifically about interviews, you know, when I grew up in Switzerland as a kid and I started in my children's room to do the little postcard museum, you know, I had a few books which I always had with me and, and in my bag and I would always travel with them and go to school with them. And one of them was Francis Bacon being interviewed by David Sylvester. Mm. Who, who, you know, and you, when you read this book, it's like super fascinating because you see that it takes a long time to get closer for David Sylvester to Bacon. And Bacon isn't really very talkative about, you know, many aspects of his practice. But little by little, you know, they get closer and the dialogue becomes more and more fascinating. And so that, I think, had a big influence on me. I was, again, thinking, you know, I was always projecting into the future and I thought, you know, one day, when I'm going to be grown up and, you know, maybe I could do similar conversations with artists and talk to them for the rest of my life of mm -hmm. their life, you know, like forever. And the same thing was also true, you know, when I read Pierre Caban with Duchamp, because Pierre Caban spoke to Duchamp again and again, you know, so this idea. And also, if you look at the archive, like of, at the 4,000 hours, it's not 4,000 artists, you know, it's, it's yeah. um, many of the artists I have. I mean, for example, the, the art, somebody asked me the other day, who is the artist with whom I've done most conversations? And that's actually the poet and uh, the poet and uh, also uh, artist, visual artist, Ete Latnan, whom I quoted many times before. Uh, with her, I have 59, uh, 59 conversations, which, you know, most of them. Uh, and then also at some point, I kind of like started to film them because that was, again, you know, I'm so grateful to him, thanks to a conversation because Jonas Mekas, I was like in a cafe with Jonas Mekas in the early 90s. And Jonas mm. was always like filming with his Super yeah. 8 camera. And he basically said, you know, you, you, you meet all these amazing, wonderful people. And like, you're going to really regret it one day when you're older that you're not, that you don't film it. So, so because of Jonas, you know, I then, I then, you know, filmed, I started to kind of film all, all these, these conversations. And, and, and again, of course, they, you know, can exist online as film. A majority of it has not really been published of the films. You know, I think in the next sort of chapter, of the publication of my interview project, I really want to publish more of the films because I have about 2000 hours have been filmed. And, and, and so I think it would be nice to sort of make that material somehow, you know, somehow accessible. And then of course, some, some of these, I mean, the other thing which I realized is that if I speak to an artist or a practitioner, a scientist, a composer again and again, there can not only be anthologies of my interviews, but there can also be, singular books just with all the conversations of you know and the, and the, pre the previous book to um uh, to lovelock with isolari where the i don't know if you saw is the little blue book with the conversation with edouard yeah. lisson that was the print that's of course another writer and author i interviewed many 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 times and we also traveled together we traveled to munich for utopia station we traveled to avignon for the theater festival we traveled to sardinia in italy for an uh, architecture festival so i would travel with Glisson. And during these trips, you know, we record these conversations and then today it can become a book. Now, what is interesting is to kind of, you know, also say the exception in a way from the rule is that it is sometimes possible that um, uh, that one conversation can also lead to a book. Uh, and that's, mm. of course, the case of, of the book you mentioned of, of Lovelock. 
Um, because I mean, Lovelock was very old. He was a hundred, I think, when I met him, ninety-nine or a hundred. He passed away when he was one hundred and three, uh, and and I didn't have the opportunity to uh, sadly meet him a second time. We tried because I wanted. Then he wrote Nova Scene, and I really wanted to update the interview and do a second conversation with him. Uh, but he, you know, he was then too unwell, and we we couldn't meet anymore. So I had only this one window there, you know, of opportunity to yeah. to meet him, and that's of course also. I mean. The long duration is not only to to do conversations over many years, but it can also be to do very long recordings, you know, because, I mean, I usually record uh, one hour and then, you know, it's it sort of, and then again and again and again. But in the case of Lovelock, I, we actually recorded a whole afternoon. It was like three, four hours. And that's why actually this very long seance could, could become a book. Yeah. And it was kind of fun because uh, actually the editor Sebastian Clark, who is you know the who is the editor of Isolari, he he listened again to the tapes and he realized that when I when I actually uh, left his house, he accompanied me to the gate, you know, and I would then enter the car, and I I, I had not noticed oh, Sebastian, who is you know the editor, realized that I had forgotten to switch off the. car camera oh, yeah. when yeah like when i left the house and there is this really magical epilogue which i had no idea existed kind of from the moment we leave the house to the moment he you know we say goodbye and i enter the car and it's only two or three minutes but it's maybe one of maybe the most important part of the book yeah it's these last few these last two pages that happened by chance wow um Chance is really key in my work. You know, I think we always need to be, I think I always want to be open for chance. You know, that's again, Cedric with the idea of that not everything can be planned in architecture. And the same thing is true for my work. And I always try to sort of, you know, organize conditions for chance to arrive. Yeah. Um, You mentioned archiving and so Jonas Mekas. And I was thinking his film as I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty is one of the best examples of an artist immortalizing not only themselves as an idea, but in a way their entire life. And I was wondering if you had any plans to do something in a similar vein with your archive, like transforming it into a piece of work that sort of summarizes your life, or is that the archive itself? Yeah, I mean that is that is a also a super interesting question, which uh, is maybe a bit early to answer I, because I haven't figured it out, you know, yeah. in a way. I, I but I it's something I do think about, which is why it's it's a really good question because I always wonder, you know, to which extent, because obviously there is a lot of things which bring it all together, you know, and there are particularly, you know, I mean, I've I've written an autobiography recently, which is actually not really an autobiography, but it's it's in a way. For the first time, maybe a little bit a more personal book, uh, and um, and uh, because I think m- most of my books are, you know, always about other people. They're about the practices. They're trying to make visible always. I mean, that's my work. My work is about making visible, you know, the practice of artists, of architects, of designers, of poets, and uh, and I always kind of, you know, resisted this idea to do something more personal, which would be more to do with my life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in a way. There's this French novelist, wonderful French novelist, Bernard Coman. And he, you know, in France, you have this thing that basically uh, novelists, um, 
very often edit like series in 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 mainstream publishing houses, you know, like uh, they almost like curate literature, yeah. right? And they commission texts and it's very unusual. It's very present in France, a lot of novelists. And so, so my novelist friend Bernard Gaumont is in charge of Le Seuil, of a series of books at Le Seuil, uh, which is a French literary publishing house. And he, for years and years, always said, you know, I wanted to write a more personal book because it's so DIY, you know, that it might inspire other people, you know, uh, in the, even if they're not in the art world, in their own field, you know, he said your DIY approach might inspire people and give them courage and, you know, and hope. And that convinced me then, you know, because I kind of thought that might be, so it might be, because I always wonder, you know, things have to be, you know, useful and I only want to do things if they are kind of useful for the field and also for art and for, for the world, not for society. And so then I kind of thought, okay, so if, if, but then still I didn't have time. And then mm-hmm. uh, during the lockdown, he would call me every day at 8 a.m. and he said, you have to write, you know, and then uh, literally for for weeks. And then I just started to write and write and write. And so that book has now come out. And it's kind of a lot of the things I've been, you know, we've been talking about, you know, uh, are in the book, you know, like like sort of, but also like more personal things about my childhood, you know, about uh, uh, also about my mother who later in her life became an artist, you know, because that was also really fascinating because my mother really had not, not had no relationship so much to art. But then I would always, I read that um, uh, the the film critic Serge Danet, who was always a big inspiration also for me, he, you know, he also started to travel like really early. Um, mm-hmm. And he said like, you know, in order to sort of stay connected to his family, he would always send his parents a postcard, you know, wherever he was. Uh, because obviously my parents, when I was a teenager and traveling, they were always like worried, you know. And so then yeah. I would always send them a po- postcard. I would sort of copy that um, that system. And uh, and then later, when in my twenties, I started to publish a lot. Like I wrote articles and I made books and I did talks. Um, I, I extended that, and I would always send my parents everything I published and did. And so, you know, over over the years, you know. My parents received hundreds of catalogs. You know, I would also send them every group catalog I wrote for, every magazine I contributed an article to. And so my mother would read, you know, she would read basically not only my article, but she would read the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. So over like 20, 30 years, she would literally read, you know, hundreds of books about art. And she suddenly got like super, uh, yeah, in a way inspired by, by art and 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 when she was 80 she started her own art practice you know and between and she passed away when she was like 85 84 85 so the last four or five years of her life she you know she was an artist and i think that's also really um important you know that we, we i mean i started when i was like 15 or something like that or 16 um but one can also start when one is 80 it really doesn't matter, you know. At any moment in one's life, one can start something new. So, but then yeah. to come back to your question, right? About because so the book is the beginning of that, you know. And it's only out in French for now. So they so published it, and we I want to write a little bit more, um, and then and then it's gonna come out in English. Uh, but then there is also there is also another thing in relation to your question, which is, of course, you know, there are these these 4,000 hours and and these 4,000 hours have a lot of common ground, you know, there is because, and the common ground is, of course, certain topics and certain, you know, uh, 
things I consider urgent, which always come back. You know, I would always ask the, the person I interview about their unrealized project, right? So, so things which haven't happened, utopias or dreams or stuff like that. I would also ask them about what you ask me, you know, in relation to the school, you know, the institution. I, I would ask them, you know, something is often missing. So I would ask them, what's in the current society an institution which is missing? You know, is there, is there a school? Is there a museum? How would you imagine, you know, a missing institution? I always ask that. Uh, I always also ask how you begin, because I think it's very fascinating how, how people, you know, start. Like, how mm. does an artist begin? How is there an epiphany? Is there a revelation? Is there... I mean, in a, in a similar, very similar what, what you asked me, you know, about the childhood, about the beginnings. So uh, I would always ask that because I think it's kind of inspiring, you know, for people, you know, to to read how an artist begins. And and, and, and it's also inspiring, I think, to see how an artist then find, finds their language, you know, how, uh, because obviously at the beginning, it's like student work and how, so that's why I always also ask what's the, the number one in the catalogue raisonné, you know, what's the first... To a poet, I would say, what's the first poem you were happy with, you know? And to a visual artist, you know, what's the number one in your catalog resume? To a scientist, you know, what's your first paper you feel is your catalog, you know? I mean, in visual art, you have the catalog resume because it's the first artwork, which basically, uh, it's the first artwork, which, um, yeah. Would you say you have one of those? Uh, yeah, for me, it's very clear. Yeah, it's the kitchen show. It's uh, yeah. because I was basically for a long time trying and I wasn't sure and you know and it was what's the word you used before haze yeah it was hazy yeah, yeah. yeah and it's a really good word it was very hazy for a long long time because I felt that everything had been done so I felt very depressed about that I felt like there's nothing more for me to do anymore that mm. was so strange I just felt everything had been done whenever I had an idea I had the feeling every, that someone already had had it you know like uh and then i i reject i ejected it you know i said so no i can't do it and so that went on for years it was really uh yeah it was really difficult and uh and i but i also knew that before i was really sure i didn't really want to do a show which i wasn't happy with um and and uh and so i was just searching right and and i think these these night train journeys you know they were like my learn, my grading and learning years, you know, but they were also the search for that, the search. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I remember I was on a, on a train and, um, and, and Boltanski had told me that the late Christian Boltanski and, uh, uh, and also Annette Messager, I had visited them. And they basically had said um, that they had told me that Harald Seemann, the, the legendary curator, you know, who, whom I mentioned to you before, who was in Switzerland, that when he had done Documenta, the biggest art show in the world, in a way, the, the, the Documenta and Castle, he returned to Bern, his hometown, and he basically organized an exhibition on his grandfather in, his, in, his, in the apartment, famously. And so Botansky said, you know, maybe you don't have to look that far. Maybe mm. you could just do it, you know, in your apartment. And then I basically... Uh, the week after, I had my artist friends Fischli Weiss from Switzerland, the, the extraordinary Swiss artist Fischli, Peter Fischli and David Weiss. They, they came to visit my student apartment in St. Gallen. You know, I studied at, uh, at the University of St. Gallen. And, uh, and I told them, Bortanski said I should do an exhibition maybe in my apartment. And 
Fishley Weiss said, you know, he's probably right. He said, and they said, you know, because my, my kitchen was full of books always because I never cooked. So the books were like everywhere in the kitchen. And uh, so Fishley Weiss said we could actually make this kitchen into a kitchen. You know, we could liberate the kitchen from the books. So <laughs> they started to, they said, you know, you should remove all the books out and have the empty kitchen. And then the idea was born, you know? So it was kind of like a chain reaction, right? And, yeah. and, and, uh, and then I thought like Potansky says the apartment and Fish Device the kitchen. And then I did the kitchen show and we invited uh, 20, we invited a few artists, it was about seven artists. Uh, and the, you know, Fish Device did a, a kitchen altar with oversized food. So that like five kilograms of noodle and five liters of ketchup, like for restaurant supply. So everything looked too big, you know, became like an altar piece. And then Brodansky projected a candle where usually the garbage would be. There was a little miracle appeared, a, a projected candle and stuff like that. And Hans-Peter Feldman, you know, exhibited in the fridge because he said, I prefer the fridge to the kitchen. So you had actually an exhibition within the exhibition. There was the fridge exhibition. And, you know, and that, that sort of way, that almost sort of serendipitous kind of way of working is still true until today, you know, sort of one of my more recent projects is, of course, my Instagram exhibition of handwritten little notes, which uh, uh, which has been going on for the last something like 10 years. And that's another example of very similar methodology. So basically, I would basically uh, be in the apartment of Umberto Eco uh, in, in, uh, in Milan and, you know, talk to him about archives and memory and you know, it was really fascinating. He, he had a like a shelf for every um, book he wrote for the research he made. You know, so it was like many bookshelves in the apartment. And then it was a bit like in the name of the rose. It was actually quite scary. He had a key in his pocket, and he said, "We are now going to go to the secret room." And he opened the door with the key, and then he locked it behind. So we were locked in this room. It's really scary. And then, because having read the name of the rose, I sort of suddenly started like weird things might start to happen. Yeah. Luckily, they didn't. <laughs> And, you know, he started to show me all these medieval books um, and uh, he had collected and he said he doesn't want anybody else to enter. You know, this was really, it's his private room because these books are so fragile. And uh, and so then, you know, this amazing conversation ended and he uh, accompanied me to the stairway, to the staircase. And, you know, we said goodbye. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, your generation has to do something. Handwriting disappears. And uh you know, I'm too old and, you know, uh, I can't do it anymore, but that's that's your job. So that's also kind of interesting because in a way, when I was like at the beginning, you know, that was much later, that was maybe 10, 12 years ago, that Echo visit. Uh, but at the beginning when I was a kid and I would go and see all these artists because I was like so young, they would all give me tasks, yeah. you know, and that's, yeah. these tasks became lifelong tasks. So, so for example, Rosemary Trockel said, you know, she was then like 30 and I was like 16, 17. So she said, um, you know, I, I'm very touched that you visit me, uh, a young artist, but there is all these pioneering artists who are, you know, very old and no one looks at their work and you should really also do that, you know, and particularly lots of women artists, she said, you know, because there's so many women artists because only Louis Bourgeois was well known in Europe at the time. And she said, there's so many other like women artists and you should just go from city to city on your trips and you should basically say, you know, who is the pioneering artist and who is the Louis Bourgeois here? Who is the pioneering artist? Yeah. And that, that Rosemary Tocco methodology I've applied ever since, you know, and that's, that led to many shows from Maria Lasnik. I mean, so it's really influential on the Serpentine program with our teams, you know, we, we always ask this question, you know, uh, and that's why we would come to artists like Faith Ringold, Kamala Ibrahim Ishak, 
Barbara Shays Ribou, you know, all pioneering artists who just need a big solo presentation, a book, you know, whose work. So, so then um, Alighiero Boetti would say, you should ask everyone about unrealized projects, you know, so he gave me a task. And, uh, and so in a way, uh, later on, that became a bit less frequent, right? Because, uh, but still it does happen sometimes. And so that's what Eko did. He basically gave me a task. He said, you're going to do something uh, where you're going to save handwriting. And I, I was like super intimidated by the, you know, by the scale of that task. As I, thought, I mean, I'm, you know, not a, an expert on calligraphy. And he then said, maybe you should start a calligraphy school. And I obviously wasn't competent to do that. And I also wouldn't know where and how. But then I carried this idea with me, like, you know, again and again, I was thinking, how could we save handwriting? And then we were like on holidays with uh, my partner Kushonga and with Simon Fatal and, and her partner, uh, Itela Nan. Uh, so, so basically, uh, the four of us were in Britannia in this, um, in this uh, it was 12 years ago. Yeah, we were in this, uh, during Christmas, in this small hotel and then went on walks and, uh, and it was like raining all the time. So one day there was really, it was pouring about rain and, and, and we had to go to a cafe because we just couldn't continue the walk. And we would mm -hmm. stay there for hours and hours because the rain just, I mean, in Britannia in December, it just rains all the time. And so we basically were waiting for the rain to stop. And after about two or three hours, you know, uh, we all went on our phones and started to, you know, after having had a great conversation, started to answer a few emails and so on. But obviously Etel, who was in her 90s, um, didn't have a smartphone. So she took out her little notebook and started to write a poem. And that's when suddenly, you know, the penny dropped. I, I thought like, wow, Echo tells me that and I'm with artists all the time. I could just ask them, like artists, poets, writers, I could ask them whenever I meet to write a sentence, you know, as Etel just did and then photograph it, film it and it's become this movement, you know, and and, uh, uh, and I wanted it to be a movement because I wanted like many people to follow these Instagram accounts so that it would really, and that's also why, you know, I wanted it to be, to go beyond the art world. It is about 380,000 people who follow it now. And, you know, many of them are not in the art world. They're just interested in handwriting, you know, and, yeah. uh, and, and in a way, uh, so, so the, the, the genesis of this project is very similar to the kitchen show, you know, it's kind of a, a, a flannery of some sorts. It's one thing leads to the next and, and I nudge it, uh, but I don't master plan it somehow. It's quite interesting. There's a sense of selflessness that seems to be coming up. Like the when you said, my auto, I want to do my autobiography, but to encourage other people to do the same or to inspire them. And then when you're younger, feeling like everything's been done and then your, your work sort of proliferates out of being told to do other things by these artists. So there's this sense of selflessness and yeah, just selflessness that seems to be coming up quite regularly. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's, a, it's the idea in the work to enable, you know, uh, the, the, yeah. I see my practice as an enabling practice to enable to, to be a catalyst. Also, sometimes it's more than enabling, sometimes it's a catalyst activity, you know, sometimes it's, but it's also, uh, I mean, I, I kind of once, because the, Word curating maybe doesn't fully, you know, in any case, it's become a little bit, so first of all, it's, I've always, it's never really covered my entire practice curating, yeah. you know, in a way. And also it's become a rather, you know, uh, widely used term. I mean, there are even, you know, uh, there are even, 
definition I, I seem to think and just sorry it, I think for people of my generation they tend to take it as very organized and rigid and are yeah. you bring an order to a space but then the order as you said always needs to have space for chance and play and unexpected things yeah, exactly. So in a way, it's more like, for example, in France, it's even more what you just described. You know, in France, it's called commissaire. You know, that's almost like a policing thing. Yeah. You know, and, it, it, and and so so I've never been comfortable with that. And so then I I was interviewing JG Ballard, and uh, and I asked JG Ballard about this problem. You know, how could one call this activity? And he said it's very simple. He says basically what you do is junction making. You know, and and I think this idea of of junction making is actually uh, the Palladian term, you know, of, of junction making is, is actually rather sort of fitting because, you know, I obviously when I do exhibitions, which is what I do, I mean, I still do exhibitions. It's, it's, it's not everything I do, but it's a, a central part of my work. You know, I make junctions between artists and works, you know, like when I install objects in a space, I, that's junction making. You, know, you, you make junctions between objects. But obviously, we live in a time, you know, where it's not only about objects. I mean, already since the 60s, Lucy Lippert said, you know, uh, it's the dematerialization of art. So we also have non-objects, you know. Uh, so I also make junctions between non-objects. That's like do it, you know. Do it are these instructions. So and, and that's very Lippardian in that sense. You know, it's sort of junctions between non-objects. So objects, non-objects. And then you have, of course, the, the notion of um, Michel Serre of the quasi-object, you know, like a football would be a quasi-object. So the football only gains meaning. There's a whole ritual around the football, but the football in itself, you know, doesn't have meaning. It's it's the it's the it's the, the, the it's a quasi-object. And then you have a hyper-objects in Timothy Martin's sense. That's a weather system, or you know, it's a bigger system. And I think today, you know, so so in a way, um, I probably make junctions between people, um, between objects, between quasi-objects between non-objects and hyper-objects somehow. Mm. Um, how do you find balancing, so you, as you, you've said, and it comes across quite clearly, uh, your voracious appetite for information and new ideas, lifelong learner. Yeah. How do you balance that with the creative side of curating, which is putting things in conversation with each other, as you just explained how do you balance the consumption and creation aspect yeah that's i mean that's a permanent conundrum in a mm. way in in our time i think yeah because uh it's we always i think it's always about liberating time in a way i mean philip areno and pierre week the artists uh once started this association uh to liberate time and that's kind of always on my mind is, you know, how can we actually in this sort of very accelerated world where information is so accelerated, how can we liberate time? And, 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 and of course, one way to liberate time is the sort of in the wider sense in my practice is the studio visit, right? Because when once I visit an artist, you know, I am su super focused on that. And it's uh, a conversation. I mean, you know, where anyway, the, I record the conversation. So the conversation goes on. Uh, uh, I mean, the app, both of my phones go on. Uh, how do you call this when you switch off Airplane the phone? Mode. 
yeah, they go on airplane mode, and and then and then I record the conversation, and I forget time, you know. And it can sometimes be like with Lovelock. I mean, it's like a seance. Mm. They're like seances. So 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 that's one way. I think the other way is to define, you know, um, to define time for reading and writing where one is disconnected. So I think it has to do with delinking in a way. Uh, it's it's a sort of it's the way how one negotiates or how I try to negotiate being hyperlinked and being delinked, no? And, uh, and I, but it's it's a I mean it's a super interesting question because I think it's it's kind of in its full thing unsolvable. One could just always try, uh, uh, but it's it's uh, it's in a sort of in this age of distraction, you know, uh, one always needs to find you know new tricks to concentrate. Mm. Uh, it, it can also be to go on walks. I mean, night trains are really. Uh, they continue to be a very important medium for me, you know, particularly, I mean, you know, living, living in London, it's, it's, uh, since the Eurostar is there, it's mm. possible to go almost everywhere in Europe by train. And, uh, as I'm also in Paris very frequently, you know, I lived there for 15 years and many of my friends are there. So I would always very, very often go by, by train to Paris and then spend a few hours there and then continue by train elsewhere in Europe, you know, and I, also, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of night trains have been abolished since yeah. my childhood, you know, but they're now coming back. And I think the future is a night train. Uh, I think it's the future of mobility uh, are night trains, particularly for the European continent. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and night trains have been my most creative space by far. I've had, I mean, not only did I have the idea for the kitchen show there, you know, but I've had most of my book ideas. And, uh, and then sometimes it's also geographical i mean you know i i think i i always return to this valley in switzerland uh in sils maria it's this village in the mountains on 2000 meters altitude and uh it's where nietzsche wrote zarathustra and uh strangely uh strangely a lot of people have always had ideas there hmm. uh it might have to do with the altitude but maybe not it's, it's maybe something else maybe it's uh, uh it's if Maybe there is no explanation for it. In any case, uh, in this, this uh, I did a show there in 92, 93 with Gerhard Richter in the Nietzsche house, one of my early shows after the kitchen. Uh, and I go there always, very regularly. I return to Sils Maria. And, uh, and there's a lake also, and there is a rock at that lake where Nietzsche had the epiphany for the eternal return. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, I would say, yeah, the majority of my ideas were born there. So. I go there and de-link in a way. And then of course the transition from, because there's another part to your question, which it's, it's really such an interesting question. There's another part to your question, which is as far as I understand, it's about how the transition happens from a conversation to the production of reality also, no? Because obviously, yeah. because the conversation is initially about exchanging information. It hopefully then, goes beyond information and becomes knowledge you know so it gels into some form of knowledge exchange uh, but then it's not an, a knowledge exchange uh, for its own sake but my conversations are what I call reality production conversations so you know all the projects the hundreds of books and exhibitions and other things I'm doing they all grow out of conversation 
Mm. So, so in a way, and that transition is is often very interesting, you know, because very interesting. Very often, in in a conversation with an artist or a practitioner, comes out the idea of what we could do together, you know, about or the you know the question of the unrealized project is really relevant there because I'm not asking the question of the unrealized projects only. To, to document it. And I do think that the world should know more about the unrealized projects of practitioners because we only know about the architects' unrealized projects because they publish them in competitions, but we know very little about other practitioners' unrealized projects. I think a, a lot of things could happen by just having an awareness that these projects exist. But then also, very often, we actually then, out of these conversations, decide, you know, one can decide that, to realize these projects, no? Mm. You need, yeah, you need a push uh, often. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go back to the video games. You mentioned Third World, the bottom dimension earlier. And yeah. I'm curious about one of my favorite things from the trailer was when one of the characters says that we always have a choice. And it made me think about the way in which the viewer often imposes meaning or less dramatically, slightly chooses the meaning of artworks in relation to either what they've heard through a curator or a critic or just the framing of the artwork. And I was wondering if you think video games extend the process of choosing meaning, they make it more overt, or do they do something different? Yeah, I think they, um, I mean, ideally, it's it's quite similar to, to something Master Duchamp already said that the viewer does at least 50% of the work, no? And it, it, it of course, I mean, the Masan uh, game offers, you know, visitors the opportunity to kind of play a game in a communal setting. So it's actually also, you know, it's interesting because we of course have to ask ourselves also, why would we do, why would we show a video game in a public gallery? You know, why why don't we play it at home, no? Yeah. And I think the fascinating thing about Masan, but also all the other artists are showing, the other show in, in, in Mets, is is that it's it happens in a communal setting, you know, around a site specific set design, which can be very physical, you know, with sculptures, with sound, uh, with you know, with, with our, our, our appealing to our senses, um, and uh, and I think that's that's one important thing. Not that it's kind of about mixed reality, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the other thing is, of course, yeah, the viewer or the visitor who plays the game. This first of all, there's also there's, what is interesting also is that there is two different ways of experiencing it. Some people uh, really are immersed for hours into the game. But then you have also got a lot of visitors who very much enjoy watching yeah. people play game, you know, which is what's happening on Discord and on Twitch, you know, that, that you've got a lot of people watching people play. And it's interesting that that happens also in the gallery. You know, you have sort of uh, some visitors, they don't really want to sit down and play. They just want to watch play, you know. And yeah. uh and then, of course, I mean, the other thing which is important, I think, with Gabriel Massan's game is that it, it can, you know, so hopefully not only involve us to participate, but also make us rethink the ways in which we understand and orient ourselves, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the world. And, and that goes through topics, you know, they address like ancestral knowledge or healing. You know, healing is really important. You go back to Emma Kuhn's. Yeah. That's a trope which always comes back in my work, you know, the aspect of art and healing. Eco- ecological awareness, you know, transmutation, agency. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it's also interesting that the decentralization, you know, to which extent can actually the decentralization of technology 
be connected to a participatory idea of art. And and and, mm. and you know, the, the whole thing is a collaboration with Tezos, who who are our partners, tech partner on the project. And uh, and there is you know the idea is that you participate as a viewer, and if you really play the game, you can then get a digital token, uh, and the digital token uh, uh, is actually the memory of you you playing the game. So it's exciting. Um, I'm aware that we've slightly overrun. So I've yeah, just... I have about three more minutes. Yeah. Okay. Last question. You've mentioned a, a handful of names of inspirations: Taylor, Isan, and um, Duchamp, etc. Um, if you could recommend the works of one writer to every young aspiring artist, who would it be? Oh wow. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I would still always. I read Glissant. I read Glissant every day, fifty minutes. Uh, uh, so I would still recommend that uh, because, in a way, um, there are so many toolboxes in Glissant. You know, it's really a, a toolbox, and um, it's the right to opacity. It's the archipelago. It's mondialité. It's creolization. It's also the whole, you know, uh, idea of, um, in a way, um, inventing one's own institution because he invented also a school, Glissant, which actually was realized. His museum was not realized. It's it's the utopia, the concrete utopia, the trembling utopia, in a way, as he called it, of connecting all cultures to all other cultures, you know, in the world. It's it's. I think it's it, he's the in a way, for me, many different ways, the most urgent writer for the 21st century. And he's an amazing toolbox, I mean, uh, I think for, for curators, for artists. So I would still say Glissant. Um, I would always say Etel Adnan, who is, you know, one of the few writers I've read every single line she has written. And as Mahmoud Darwish said, she's never written a bad line. <laughs> so uh, one can just start anywhere, you know, with Etel. I would start with Mount Tamalpais and with Sigmarie Rose and... Uh, and then go to her more recent cycles of poetry, which are more yeah, which also are connected to a kind of a, to yeah, to ecology and the environment. Uh, I would also say, um, I mean, Robert Walzer always because I've read every line he wrote. I founded a museum for him uh, when I was uh, a student. Um, I think Robert Walzer's uh, work about his inner exile when he also then stopped writing. I would say the works with Robert Walzer. Carl Selig, that has been translated. I think Carl Selig wrote a book about his works with Robert Walser about the time when Robert Walser had stopped writing. Uh, and then most recently, I've been very inspired by Alexis Pauling Gamps. And I would recommend a young artist to read, you know, Dub, for example, uh, D-U-B, which is, of course, connected like, to Dub poetry, but it's also Dub, like in W, like in Silvia Winter. Mm. And it's kind of a book about the legacy of Silvia Winter uh, and it's also, you know, it shows us also that in inspiration is not necessarily genealogical. Mm. So, but that it's, that in a way, you know, like I think when as a, as a curator or as an artist or as a poet or as a writer in any sort of creative field, if one works, you know, it's not necessarily genealogically one is inspired by X, Y, Z, but I think it's it's more like working with, as Alexis Pollingham says. So she writes this book on, you know, for her, Sylvia Winter is what precise for me. And uh, I would also recommend every student to read Sylvia Winter, by the way, going from Alexis Pollingham to Sylvia Winter. But I think it's interesting uh, how um, 
you know, I, I think it's interesting how as a, um, uh, as a writer, Alexis Bollingham says, she's actually thinking with Sylvia uh, Victor. So it's, it's not linear, you know, it's thinking with, it's like, it's a, go back to the toolbox. And then I would say, I would recommend a young student also to, uh, to look into the sort of kind of art and technology question through podcasts, you know, and I would sort of go, I think Holly Herndon's and Matt Dryhurst interdependent post interdependence po podcast. Uh, it's the artist Holly Herndon, the, the artist Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst. Uh, they are two, you know, amazing artists and technologists. Um, and I would say that th that's been massive inspiration or toolbox for me lately. And it's one of the really most insightful things about AI and, and, and yeah. So I would also sort of listen to podcasts and Interdependence is a great podcast. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to keep you for any longer. Thanks a lot. No, thanks for your great questions. No, thanks for the great answers. That was really interesting. Okay. Nice to meet you. Have a good day. Goodbye. Bye.